to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at all the American presidents. As always, I'm joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually does the research and knows about the history of the, our presidents. I just sit back and look pretty because you're only listening to my voice and you can't see my face, but believe me, I look beautiful. How's it going, Neil? Uh, it's, it's going good. It's going good. We're... We're jumping back a little bit, um, and for our next president, just just only twenty years, but it's a lot of a different kind of time. So I'm excited to talk about Grover Cleveland today. Yeah, uh, we jumped forward a hundred plus years from our first episode to our second, and now we're time traveling back. If you would have given me a blank piece of paper and told me to write down all the presidents that I know, Grover, the name Grover. <laughs> would have never crossed my mind like i don't i th- i think he's the only person that i know that has that name like i don't is there another historical figure I don't think that's I've grover met, i've never met like a grover obviously well i mean i, I don't know if the, that's an abundant name today but yeah <laughs> no there there are definitely no other presidential grovers cleveland's a cool last name though we'll say. yeah that's a good i mean but you're biased the year is 1884 uh, Dow Jones published his first stock index. The first volume of the Oxford English Dictionary is published. Uh, Mississippi establishes the first public college for women. Uh, Mississippi, wow. Yeah. The first mm-hmm. long-distance phone call between Boston and New York occurred, and they probably just, you know, talk crap about their teams. Just They just mm-hmm. called to say Boston sucks or something like that. Uh, the panic of 1884 sets in, which is um, part of the the economic depression that occurred between 1882 and 1885. And that is it for me. And obviously, our, our boy Grover got elected to be the, what's the number? I'm sorry, 22nd, right? Yes. And, and 20, 20, well, 22nd yeah. and 24th. He'll be the only president that can claim two different numbers on there. So good for him. That, but, and and the and the only Grover, he is a very unique individual. Yeah, yeah, he he was. I don't know. I I have a very back and. I mean, I think the historians in general kind of probably have a, a back and forth in feeling about Grover. So he's the only. There are only two Democratic presidents that were elected between 1861 and 1933. That's Grover Cleveland, Woodrow Wilson. But Grover is the only Democrat to be elected post Civil War in the 19th century. And really, that shouldn't be surprising because it turns out, you know, the party that mostly champions, and I'm talking about the Democratic Party at this point, um, succeeding from the Union solely to maintain an economy and society that's dependent on an institution of slavery has political consequences, believe it or not. Um, so, yeah, from that time span, Republicans won 14 of 18 presidential elections. And that means, you know, Grover Cleveland was responsible for half of the presidential wins for Democrats in the 75 year span. He won three, right? Well, he won two. He won two. He actually, he was in three and he won the popular vote in, in all three. You can drop that fun fact in the beginning. What makes him, I think, a more interesting president to study in our, in our first few podcasts here. So um, you may expect that the path to the presidency, the presidency then may have taken, you know, a very skillful political maneuver, maneuvering from him, pull off rare wins he had in the post-Civil War era. But the playbook was actually pretty simple. You know, uh, Republican administrations that presided immediately post-Lincoln, post-1865, were a mess, to put it lightly. President Johnson becomes the first president to be impeached. That's the president right after Lincoln. Uh, and he, so he leaves the office in disgrace. 
His successor, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, struggles to appoint cabinet members that aren't stealing government money to pocket for their own gain. Rutherford B. Hayes follows Grant, um, and his whole presidency was viewed as corrupt by the public from the beginning, uh, since he won the election through pretty shady means. And then his successor... These are, these are, these are all spoilers for all those episodes. Well, it, it's just like a we good context. Put, no, no, this is wonderful. I'm, I'm kidding, but we could have put a spoiler warning before. Right. You, we have, you know, just a ton of Republicans who are not only forgettable, but just like really bad presence. Um, uh, Rutherford Reed Hayes, Hayes' successor, James Garfield, was assassinated <laughs> by a man who was eventual for not getting the political appointment he wanted uh, with Garfield's administration. And so Chester Arthur, the vice president, follows and he tries to make a law that tries to clean up corruption, actually, in political appointments. And then the Republican Party responds by not even, a, you know, putting him to the ticket in 1885 or in 1884, be against Grover yeah. Cleveland. So the Republican Party is a mess and all over the place, but they're allowed to be because they have such a strong coalition. Um, yeah, they felt they felt invincible, essentially, since they've never been. Well, I'm not going to say challenged, but they've never lost. So they just 1856. They got coffee. They got coffee. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, and my boy and my boy Grover just came out of nowhere and yeah, pulled it off. Cinderella story. A, a, yeah, more of a Cinderella story than you actually even know yet. All right, he has a pretty simple objective for the eighteen eighty four presidential race. Uh, he's running a campaign that promised to put an end to the era of corruption, and so he effectively messages messages himself as an anti corruption candidate, and that's just a, a simple playbook move there. With that context in hand, though, you know, let let's start with a little bit more of just like his his timeline and his rise to power. Um, he was he was born the fifth of nine children, so a lot of what was common in that day to have a bunch of siblings. Dad was mm -hmm. a poor minister and died when Grover was just 16. So as a result, he didn't even attend college, but he worked as a clerk um, when he was, you know, right out of being 16 in, in Buffalo. Um, he was admitted to the bar at age 22, so it didn't really slow him down much. And so he, the Civil War occurs in his mid-20s, um, and he was drafted but was able to actually avoid um serving in the war by paying 300 dollars for a polish immigrant to take his place um oh so, wow yeah that that is um something that doesn't necessarily come back to haunt him um except i mean it could have but it didn't really politically cost him like you know it probably should have because so i mean spoilers i had to the episode because i always like to ask that question of you uh once you we're done doing your summary of the president. Um, is this fact something that, you know, revisionist history tend to focus on? Or is it glossed over? It's pretty glossed. I mean, Grover Cleveland, this whole time is, is kind of glossed over. So if, we're gonna, if anyone ever really talks about Grover Cleveland, they don't really focus on this part of his, of his character, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, yeah, you know, a lot of men during this period don't really have, like, great character to begin with but he does you so know, what what was he doing to afford such a steep because three hundred dollars back then wasn't nothing exactly. to sneeze at exactly no he was he was a lawyer paid with paid well back then if you're a lawyer at 22 years old you're pretty set and that's sort of what happens he he rises up the ranks of of being of top lawyers in the city of buffalo he's famous for just being um just having a photographic like memory in court cases and being really disappointed in court, essentially. So kind of just this rise of fame. He doesn't really have much of a political experience um, up until 1870 when he's elected sheriff of Erie County. 
Uh, and then again, in that role, nothing of political consequence really takes place. Uh, he just serves in that role from 1870 to 1873 and then continues being a lawyer for the next seven years. So no one really has him on the radar in like the uh, you know election of 1880. He's not even been elected to like a significant political office to this point. So no one had ever really thought that he would be on the Democratic ticket in the next election. In 1881, he had asked to run for mayor of the city of of Buffalo. And he has like a reputation of being a more honorable and trustworthy figure in the city. And, you know, even at the local level, the amount of corruption occurring in political circles was highly known to the public. Um, and government contracts, it, those were, you know, and their policies were explicitly rewarded through political connections, rather than like the most cost effective solutions using tax, taxpayer dollars. So a lot of rail lines were rewarded, uh, or like railroad projects, just community mm -hmm. sewage projects, any kind of infrastructure project usually went to people who had political connections and then they cashed a lot of government money from them. So, I mean, not, not, not many things, not uh, something that has changed so drastically in today's yeah, standards. Right? Exactly now, there's, now there's more onions to peel back to get to the center core, but there's always the same guy that paid that guy, that paid that guy, that paid the lobbyist, that paid the second lobbyist to get the yeah. government contract. But back then That's it was literally, literally he, uh, the, uh, Rockefeller would just walk into the office of a political figure and just give him money and be like, yeah, give me a favor. And everybody was like, yeah, Rockefeller was here yesterday. He, he got everything. Yeah. Not quite as sophisticated during that time. And it really isn't really much that like politicians do to stop that. They also get kind of, you know, they get rewards off of giving out, you know, political favors, obviously. Mm -hmm. So Cleveland wins uh, mayor because, you know, he's able to, you know, go against this grain of, you know, just corruption. And as a reformer, he vetoes infrastructure bills, um, decides to award those contractors who purposely hike the price of their service since they knew they would be selected for public projects. <laughs> since, uh, since he's such an anti-corruption guy, what was his reasoning behind dodging the war? Essentially doing something, I guess, Back then, not seen as moral uh, pain that amount of money to escape it. Was he against the war or simply he just didn't want to participate or his values didn't align with? I mean, by all accounts, he was a lifelong Democrat. And I mean, Democrats in that time were, you know, very, I mean, almost all of them succeeded, you know. So I, it's hard to say. Like, I don't think there are like a lot of accounts of if he supported or didn't support the war. I mean, if you live in New York at the time, you probably a good idea not to support, um, you know, the Confederacy. I just think there's also like the, the fact that, you know, it was a war. It was like the deadliest war in American history. Yeah, I don't I'm not <laughs> begrudging him not wanting yeah. to go potentially well, I mean, die. Yeah, yeah. Like there's I mean, I think that he just had the resources to avoid, you know, being in, yeah. you know, terrible conditions and, you know, possibly getting killed. And, and he just played his cards. Yeah. All right. Back to um, uh, Grover the mayor. Again, he just uses a veto power of, you know, his mayoral office um, more than, you know, it, it, it becomes kind of like his, his signature move as a politician because he only he never serves as a, a senator or a representative or something that, you know, you have to work in a whole body for. He's only in these more executive roles throughout his political career and very short political career up to this point. And so he becomes governor of New York just in the next year, in 1882. 
they ask him to be governor of New York because he gets that popular in Buffalo and carries on the same kinds of efforts to veto bills that would propel corrupt policymaking. Um, and so this turns him into a nationally known um, political outsider uh, pushing against status quo of politicians looking the other way on taxpayer money. Is really, he, he's a refreshing figure. He's very new. And, you know, the Democratic Party, again, hasn't, doesn't have really much going for it up until this point in the sense that, you know, they can't take the presidency. And so they're going to take a chance on Grover Cleveland in the election of 1884. Was he um, viewed like the, the people's politician or was he, he viewed was, as a politician politician? People were comparing him to people to like George Washington at this point, mm -hmm. like someone wow. who like just pretty much could not lie or just had such an honorable reputation for being just honest, straightforward, and like cutting against the grain of any kind of corruption. And I mean, in some, in, in principle, he has those qualities, but he also has some defects as well that we'll get to. Up until this point, you know, again, Hillings had not lost an election since 1856. And that was, again, you know, in part because they had an unbeatable co coalition. They were the party that framed themselves, and again, these are the Republicans, as a protector of American businesses, by advocating for high tariffs. Uh, they pressured middle class voters to not forget the, you know, the horrors of the Civil War. And they were the party that also pulled the country together from the Civil War. And so they could claim that they were, you know, again, the party that ended slavery and granted black men voting rights. And, but by 1884, you know, that coalition had greatly weakened. Uh, they still had the support of rich business owners, but were losing the middle class through the decades of corruption that they oversaw in the White House. And they essentially gave up on protecting black Americans by giving up on reconstruction altogether. They allowed Southern states to establish Jim Crow laws. You know, they terrorized, they allowed terrorization of black Americans into not voting by means of violence and discrimination. This coalition that was essentially unbeatable is, is unraveling. And also, I mean, there's, you know, the Democratic Party shifting more towards, you know, not really being distinguished enough from the Republican Party that, you know, people feel like they're taking like in today's context, like you're voting for something completely different from the Republican Party. It's really coming down to more of like the individuals at this point rather than the parties themselves. We have the 1884 election where Cleveland, again, easily sort of gets um, onto the Democratic ticket um, to be the Democratic frontrunner against James Blaine of the state of Maine, um, who again is someone who's a gifted politician, but he has a, he has a corrupt history for rewarding railroad contracts uh, for cash and was hated by a faction of his own party. And these, uh, the Republic, I mean, this is like a, a split faction of the Republican party called the Mug Wumps, um, which, which Teddy Roosevelt um, was a part of. Teddy. So there seemed to be uh, a lot of momentum behind Cleveland and he didn't really have anything. Um, anyway, the Cleveland has, a, you know, I'm not, it's not really, I can't find like the, the right word for it, but he has a stumble when it was revealed that he actually had a kid with a woman out of wedlock 10 years earlier oh. by Republicans. They, they uncover this fact about him, which, which turns out to be true. Um, but Cleveland saved his campaign by not hiding from the issue. Um, he admitted that he had been with a woman and that her kid could have been his. And so he had been essentially paying the equivalent day of what child support was for that kid. You know, it actually doesn't, you know, hurt him as much as, you know, people would expect at that time. And he narrowly wins in the popular and electoral votes with the key states of New York and Indiana deciding the election. And it helps that he was a governor of New York and then his VP candidate, uh, Thomas Hendricks, was a governor of Indiana. So 
Um, at, at this point, you know, Republicans kind of control the whole North and then Democrats went all the South. And so then they were able to pick up two of those states, pretty much flip the election. Robert Cleveland, president, 1984. Um, Do you think he has to pay, he had to pay more child support now that he's president? You didn't, you didn't look that up, Neil? What, what type not, of research are you doing? Not, don't think so. I don't know though. <laughs> I mean, he, he sounds like a powerful, a powerful guy at the time. So I, I doubt that, you know, anyone had any. Yeah. I wouldn't want to go to court with him. Yeah. Grover's Cleveland. So we're, we're going to move on to his first term. His quick rise to power only reinforces formula of using the veto to send a strong message about eliminating wasteful spending. But it also quickly revealed that his desire to block bills was only rooted in restoring integrity to American politics. But it's also, you know, he saw a role of the government itself its limits to support constituents. So he wasn't about, you know, using the role of government to have a social safety net for the people. Um, so we really start to, you know, see the true Grover Cleveland when he becomes president and that he believes that the federal government should be less involved in policymaking and again, providing assistance to vulnerable Americans. So one standout example here is an 1887 drought in Texas uh, that created a terrible crop season for, for farmers. Um, to give him a break, Congress passed a bill that would appropriate $100,000, which was a lot of money at that time, to buy seed mm -hmm. grain for farmers. Uh, as relief, that would be a devastating year for them to be able to afford to live. Cleveland vetoed that bill and proudly affirmed uh, what became his clear ideology of conservatism and limited government. And he utilized the veto power of the presidency more than any other president in their first term up until that point by a lot. Um, and Straws a hard line for individuals seeking government assistance and making it know it would not come under his administration. So that that drought hit uh, home because uh, when we're recording this, I live in Texas and we just uh, passed through that uh, uh, historical winter storm. So would you say that Grover, even though he's in the I know that you already said that there's no distinction between the parties outside of the name at this point, but he sounds more of a. Uh, Republican, modern Republican, in terms of wanting government to not be so involved uh, helping society. Yeah, I mean, that's what's tough, you know. I think that some, there, there's a, this is kind of going to like, you know, birth the progressive movement um, that wants to, to help American workers and just society as a whole more uh, socially. But yeah, you know, there's there's no like big movement within the parties themselves right now. I, I would say the Democrats still are more. Um, well, yeah, it, it's complicated. There there are you know conservative factions in both parties, and so yeah, it's really but, hard. But to I'm not. But I'm not saying specifically the parties. I'm saying Grover himself sounds more of um, less government, more you make it on your own. Yeah. Yes, he is very much the fiscal conservative, but like everything is about integrity at this point. Mm -hmm. So he tries to play that line a little bit. But at the same time, I, I don't know if all of like the Republicans would have agreed that, or at least like the majority of the Republican Party would have agreed that he should, you know, be so like block legislation as much as he did. You know, this is during a time where like Congress is really like the most effective of like the three branches of government. Because they're having, you know, like, thing, I mean, in Andrew Johnson's administration, for example, they were like override his vetoes because they have, you know, so much power um, in terms of like having a united coalition in Congress. And so they're really used to be actually running the nation right now as opposed to the presidency. And they're kind of thrown off by all the vetoes at this point for Grover Cleveland. So uh, he has the successes in his first administration. 
He followed through on appointing cabinet members and other federal roles on a merit basis far greater than his predecessors. And ironically, he created the, US, the first U.S. regulatory agency, the Interstate Commerce Commission, uh, which regulates railroads against the threats of major price fluctuation and discrimination. That's, that was one that I thought was really interesting that he passed in the law. Failures of his first administration, though, is that he redistributed Native American land out of a reservation structure that had federal government protection, uh, instead gave control to individual tribe members. So this may have like made sense on the surface when you hear that, but the resolve of that move further hurt Native Americans when tribe leaders turn out to use the land to make money by selling it off for a payday in some cases. So it actually mm. provided less protection for Native Americans in the long run. And then he worked hard to lower the U.S. tariff as well. And that's, again, one of the, I mean, one of the most contentious issues of the day is, is how much of a tariff that you have on, on products. But he lost support because of, you know, such unified Republican support for a high tariff to protect American businesses and to make American industries, you know, super competitive at home. It remained a formula of growth for American businesses. Um, and, you know, any kind of lowering to that kind of cause was it led to his loss in the 1888 election. Uh, he goes up against uh, a much more unified Republican Party at this point, uh, being on the less popular side of major issues, like not keeping tariffs uh, fixed at high levels and vetoing increases to Civil War vet pensions. So he's defeated mm -hmm. by Benjamin Harrison despite winning the popular vote. And this time he loses Indiana and New York to decide this election. So oh. it's also the second election in presidential history where the popular vote winner loses the election. Do you know the first one? Yeah, take a guess, take a shot at it. It's with John Quincy Adams, he beats Andrew Jackson. I thought I, I like kind of dropped in John oh. Adams, which is why it's referring back. Yes, 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 yes. Luckily I get to edit I get to edit episodes so um none of this is gonna appear. The public will never know that I'm not paying attention. <laughs> well, what do you, I mean, what do you think of Grover Cleveland up to this point? Do you have any kind of like, you know? I don't know. It's kind of hard to gauge because I know that we can't go so deep into his, um, all of his actions and all of the, the way, because we're just trying to do a quick summary of all the, even though I said in depth, look at all the presidents. Um, it's, it's, it's a gloss over so we can talk about each president. It sounds like the lawyer in him never went away. So lawyers tend to have one fixed point of view and never fluctuate from it. For example, the, this, the, the cup is red and it will always be red even if somebody paints it blue. So it seems like he had one way of being a political figure. And when he got into the presidency, he, couldn't, he didn't adapt to his new surroundings. Um, and the power kind of went to his head instead of like working with Congress and learning from his environment he kind of wanted to run the states as a mayor or a governor would yeah wow that was that was great i think that that was a great way of looking so at i'm it. not i'm not gonna edit it i'm not gonna edit this part out of it i feel like you should be doing we should be flipping roles now i mean that was a, a good breakdown yeah no he i mean at this point seems like a very very stubborn type of politician and i mean i think that that's kind of common of just like lawyers up until this point what we've been learning about with taps and now with him is that you know they're not very compromising in terms of how they want to handle you know certain issues it costs him again i mean he could have made a, a pretty good political calculation of just leaving alone the tariff cruising to a, a re-election but it didn't happen so he uh goes into a bit of a hiatus when he, he went back to practicing law um, had every intention of running again in the 1992 election, though. So 
Benjamin Harrison kind of, you know, makes the path to winning back the presidency pretty easy for, for Grover. The economy starts to fall into another crisis, and Harrison was unable to campaign at all due to his wife uh, becoming severely ill of tuberculosis. She dies just a, a couple of weeks before the election. And so there's also an effective third party candidate at this point, James Weaver. Uh, he's the head of the ticket for the Populist Party, which advocated for workers' rights, uh, for better pay, hours, and, and working conditions. And so he also picks off a couple of Western states that uh, Harrison really needed. Cleveland won the 1892 election very easily this time. Uh, he takes the whole South and he picks back up New York and actually a pretty large chunk of the Midwest as well. So at this point, he's still, you know, very much, you know, believed in, very much still has the same sort of reputation going into his second term. You can see at this point, you know, we don't have the 22nd Amendment where a president is limited to just two terms. And so if he's at executes his second term well, he can continue on just being president, honestly, I mean, for as long as he wants. It's kind of weird, you know, like I think that, you know, you didn't you don't see presidents up until this point, you know, running in presidential elections year after year after or at least like if you win your ticket after each election cycle. So it's interesting just to know. I mean, I wish I would we would have more info or background on if he intended to to want to continue to be president after a second term if things wouldn't have gone so horribly. And so we get into the second <laughs> term, 1892. Grover comes so I'm in. Guessing, I'm guessing everything went perfect now. That's, that's what you're trying to say. Like he was so good at it that he was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna John Elway this. I'm just gonna walk I'm gonna into go this. Like Michael. Yeah, go okay. out like in '98. Yeah. I mean, uh, Michael but, returned to the Wizards, so yeah. This is kind of like yeah, yeah. actually no, it's not that bad. I mean, Michael, I, look. Set, we're a second. No, no, no. I love, I love Michael. I love Michael. No, he actually had a very impressive wizard season that people don't give him enough credit for. Yeah, he made the All Star and then strong arm Vince Vince Carter into giving him his starter role. <laughs> nah, if he wouldn't have gotten hurt in his first wizard season, all right. So we're starting out. a second podcast. So follow mm-hmm. us on <laughs> Off the Court. Something some other name. I all right, Grover. Okay, Grover, second term. What is happening at this point is that Benjamin Harrison uh, passes this act called the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, um, which made the U.S. more invested in backing silver as a more substantial use of U.S. currency uh, and made the government required to purchase and exchange more silver. They're operating on the gold standard at this point, uh, which I'm not going to really do a deep dive into because it's just economic policy in the 19th century. It's just not fun and talk about. But at the time, silver was overvalued and gold was undervalued. And since people in the market knew that at the time, they would trade in their currency for their gold equivalent. So trade in silver for the gold equivalent um, and then sell the gold at a higher value to metals markets, use their profit to purchase more silver. And then they kept repeating the process. So they're pretty much you know liquidating the government of the gold supply they had. So this continued the devaluation of silver and flooding gold into narrow sectors escalated into the panic of 1893, which seemingly, you know, defined all of Grover Cleveland's second term in a lot of ways. Grover Cleveland, to his credit, saw this crisis coming from Sherman Silver Act and was outspoken that it was a mistaken policy. Um, when he became president again, he was able to get the act repealed, but the economy still didn't pick back, didn't pick up from where it was. He also was able to reverse some of Harrison's tariff reform. 
because even higher tariffs, even you know more so, and made importing goods extremely expensive. Uh, that also did not raise the country's economic fortunes, though. And and railroad workers were having their wages cut while still having to work, you know, twelve-hour days. I know that you know we talked about that that eight-hour workday, um, you know, institute in 1884, but that was not a reality still for most most workers in this day. Mm. Um, and so more people became, you know, in dire need of, of social safety nets. And who would be the worst president to have besides probably like Ronald Reagan or something? Uh, Grover Cleveland. <laughs> yeah. uh, this leads to, I, I would say, you know, and, and this is a kind of just like a, an opinion take, but it, it leads to Grover Cleveland's, you know, biggest failure that, you know, he did absolutely nothing to really provide relief to working people affected by the economic crisis. I mean, you can, I mean, we're in the context of, of COVID still and, you know, people not being able to, get to work and, and do things and I mean if the government you know for how like you know dysfunctional it is you know if they don't pass us two stimulus bills you know I don't know where we're at right now so it's kind of like the same I mean if you want to like think about a similar context just think about you know him just not doing anything to help working people so growers growers policy was uh, essentially uh, walk it off you know, well you're good. I mean, walk it off it's, it's like just a, a, it's just a knee scrape walk it off and and the economy literally just have uh, blown out ACL and can't even stand on its legs. Yeah, there's like a strong ideology that you know, like all neighbors should just help each other at this point, you know, and that like if you're in need, then your neighbor will come in and fulfill, you know, or like, you know, everyone will help each other in the community, which is all great and everything. And I'm sure that does happen in community. I mean, it happens in communities every day, right? Everybody helps each other out. But, you know, it doesn't doesn't bring about it's it's not thorough enough or it doesn't provide enough like protection and a lot of people get left out you know and so mm. um you know as a result an economic collapse um and little really being done i mean grover makes these policy changes that he thinks will you know bring the economy back up but you know it takes time when the economic when the economy collapses you you need a few years for you know, things to start rolling again. And, you know, if yeah. people aren't making money in that time, then, you know, you kind of just have people in misery. And so American railroad workers go on a massive strike in Chicago. And this is known as the famous Pullman strike in 1894 that further disrupts the U.S. economy by slowing down the shipment of goods and services across the country. Um, Cleveland, you know, responds by sending in federal troops to Chicago uh, to put an end to the strike and restoring orders to the rail lines. And, and while not that a good is look. not a good look because he kills approximately 30 people doing it uh, and makes him even a more hated figure in his own party um, because, I mean, Democrats still are trying to make the case that they're, parking for, they're the party for the working people at the same time. Yeah. And that provides a lot of alienation within his party. And then obviously, you know, Republicans want him out of there. Um, and so we have the midterms that come up in 1894 and the congressional election. It was dominated by Republicans, but even more so, the Democrats that did win were not, you know, Grover Cleveland supporters. Um, and the progressive movement gains greater energy with a focus on ending monopolistic control of industries from a handful of companies and providing healthier working conditions and fair pay. So, you know, Cleveland really would never recover <laughs> after, you know, the Pullman strike and after so, the, you know, midterms. Sorry. So... He can't recover from murdering 30 people. Turns out there's also political consequences for that. It's just turned away from the Democratic Party for a fourth election. He's seen as someone who is toxic. 
And the Democratic Party at this point is also being very sympathetic to, you know, people who are huge advocates for, you know, having more like silver in the U.S. economy as well. Groper wants nothing to do with that. He wants the gold standard to still press on on the same status quo. There's a lot of like back and forth on like if you put more silver um, currency in the economy that if, you know, it helps farmers and then like, you know, other types of agrarian workers uh, with being able to pay off debts that they have. There's a lot of that back, I mean, argument going on in the background and he's just not on the right side of that argument. Kind of just goes out into the abyss in his presidency being highly unpopular and not really having much to show for, you know, being in three straight presidential elections where he wins a popular vote each time, clearly a very popular, you know, figure, but doesn't really, you know, deliver on any, you know, huge policy win, any kind of, you know, big grand, like, what do you remember of, you know, about this president, you know, like, what's their big, like, legacy takeaway? I mean, Grover Cleveland kind of becomes forgettable. It's, I mean, and, and that's not, again, that's not something that is necessarily rare for this time. And he does mm-hmm. insert, you know, more of a, he pushes against the grain of corruption and, you know, being just completely, this is an era where the legislative branch really, again, has its control and Grover Cleveland has a role in reversing that trend, right? And you have it from 1865 all the way until 1896, the legislative branch was more powerful than the executive. A lot of people can make that argument. And Grover, for his credit, that, that might be his most lasting legacy in terms of what you can remember him for, because from, from McKinley onward, we have a lot of, you know, memorable presidents, again, who have a big say in what happens um, in, you know, domestic and foreign policy. It's another thing we didn't really touch on, you know, Grover Cleveland didn't really have a big foreign policy agenda. Kind of was an isolationist. He did some things to build the military, but he didn't really want to get involved in foreign affairs as much, which is also, you know, if you want to make yourself popular, you can show military dominance. It's always kind of like a, you know, it's not like a great, you know, looking back at hindsight, you know, not a great thing to be remembered for necessarily, but which is weird be. because he he wanted to lower tariffs, so he had an outside perspective um, in terms of the global economy, but he didn't care to get involved outside of just you know I'm I'm the tariff guy. I don't want to do anything else about it. It's I mean, and, and it's weird that like you know so many historians. I mean, there's also this whole there's a lot of ways to just say like this guy's garbage, right? And I mean, you can do that about like a lot of presidents, you know, because they're living in the time where like you know they're there's just like terrible things happening in the country and people don't have the right to vote. People are being like, you know, terrorized and those kinds of things are happening. And he's not really trying to put a stop to that. And he's actually, you know, delaying a lot of progress in the country by, you know, being a Democrat at this time means that you're, you know, a lot of it means that you're trying to stop black Americans from having the right to vote. And so he's very much a part of that it kind of, you know, whenever I see people like advocating and not like, you know, people go out on the street and advocate, Grover Cleveland's a great president or something like that. But if you like, see historians advocate. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you see it all the time. Like, it's, it's very weird. I, I was jogging the other day and somebody just stopped me and was like, Grover Cleveland, right? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, I'd be like, fuck. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't even ask questions. I'd just be like, no, no, not Grover Cleveland, not Grover Cleveland. I would make it, I mean, I'm making the case, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, a much better, you know, figure for the time, even though he has his problems as well. And I hate to keep bringing up Teddy all the time, you know, but he's just like, 
kind of like a big highlight in this whole you know turn of the. I don't. I don't hate that you keep bringing him up. I'm. I'm looking forward to that episode. A takeaway is that he's just tough. He's tough to evaluate. He's tough to evaluate because you know this. You know, whenever I was a kid, you know, learning about presidents, and obviously I became like pretty interested. Like the time where I like completely just like did not care to remember anything about was this period before Teddy and after Lincoln. This is a really like, you know, corrupt sort of, you know, boring time where, or not, I mean, I shouldn't say boring, but like in just a, a time where like not a lot of progress is really made in terms of like our social movements and, you know, how we, you know, move forward. I mean, we have such a huge event of slavery finally being prohibited and people getting the right to vote and progress happening. And then that automatically just like turns around and becomes another 100 year struggle. It's really depressing in that sense to look back on this period and see these people fail in that capacity. Yeah, Grover Cleveland, what do you think? No, yeah, that was um, that was a very interesting. I didn't uh, didn't anticipate it being so. What's that like a roller coaster? Because it felt like he was. You set it up very well in that it sounded like he was going to be that beacon of hope that people wanted within that era of corruption that you were just mentioning. And then he essentially just plateaued and never grew um, his views and and never grew the party because he could have made that party. The response of the corrupt, the you know the the, the better option. Yeah, they and, could have and, themselves much earlier. Mm, right? You know, like I mean, yeah, like he, he, you know, he could have really pulled them in a different direction. He he's obviously, you know, he had control over their party for you know more than a decade. So or, would you say that his um, you know, I always ask this. It's the it's the segment that everybody's waiting for. All our fans ask for it. Um, do you think revisionist history looks? I mean, I know the answer. It's not. It doesn't look favorable upon him, and I feel like it. His peers in the moment and now historians and us looking back both kind of see him in the same light, right? Like no, not I a mean, great president. Period. I don't know if that's true. You know, because I like I was you know trying to look around you know and prepare for this question on what historians think of them, and I watched a YouTube video yesterday where someone put him at number two, like the best president of all time. I'm like what? Well, I mean, like I, I mean, the, the the background for it wasn't you know great of like the reasons why you know it was very like just like whatever. But you know they kind of have them in the same area generally as like tax. You know they're like number twenty two or number twenty three. Might be fair in some respects because there's actually just been so many bad presidents. You know that's kind of going to suck about this podcast is that like we're gonna be like oh yeah here's another president let's talk about him. But <laughs> I think it's it's just worth noting he has you know such a unique like like rise to power a unique ride to the presidency i mean again no one ever you know goes through the same experience of you know winning an election losing and then winning again and you know it doesn't really you know again it doesn't seem like he grows from the experience when he had the most time of any president to grow from the experience i mean no one is able to reflect maybe besides fdr you know because he wins four terms but no one's able to have that much time to, you know, adjust and adapt to the times. So, but yeah, he had enough time to plan out a vision and and actually accomplish it. Many presidents within four years is not enough time, and some argue that eight is not enough time to actually set all the goals that they want. And he had essentially he had twelve twelve years to work for something. So I asked you in the last episode if you preferred. 
Adams or Taft, and you selected Taft. Do you prefer Grover or Taft? Move uh, on to your favorite president of all time. I mean, I want to like maybe we should just keep doing like the the continuous like Taft, like Adams, Taft, or Grover, or like no, yeah. no, Adam was eliminated from the competition. <laughs> right now, Taft. By law, is your favorite president? By law, okay. Yeah,、um, is Grover going to replace him, or Taft going to continue to be your favorite president?、Uh, I can't. I mean, I think that you know, well, easily for me, it's Taft, right? Just because you know the the whole social part of of Grover is just not you know great to me,、um, and so like for that reason, you know, by itself, but I mean, yeah, it's kind of、like, hard to vote for a guy、mm-hmm. that went. Kill union workers because、yeah. they weren't getting paid.、Yeah. Taft, I mean, kind of had a pretty harmless presidency. So until someone comes along and really just like kills it, you know, he's probably going to keep winning this. But yeah, Taft, I guess, still greatest president of all time in our podcast series up until <laughs> by law, he is the greatest president up to now. All right, so that's it.、Uh, next、uh, episode, Neil, what are we? What are we tackling next episode? I think we're tackling Lyndon B. Johnson. So that's going to be a good episode. I think that's going to be exciting. I'm excited to talk about the 1960s, and there's a lot that goes on during that presidency. Much, much more than these, you know. Yeah. So we're jumping、um, 80 plus years into the future and talking about the 36th president, Lyndon B. Johnson. Please follow us on all the socials. We have our Instagrams. We have our Twitters. Wait. Comment.、Uh, please let Neil know what he missed.、Uh, what you think of why Grover should be number two of all time, according to that YouTube video that shall not be named. Any highlights or any lowlights that you think should have been mentioned? Follow us on our personal socials. We're pretty easy to find. Neil, anything left for the people before we say goodbye?、Uh, Grover is not number two, and Grover is not number two. <laughs> By law, he is not number two. All right, see you next time, guys. Bye.